This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. Ah, 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 ah. Thank you, so that will become clear in a moment. <laughs> I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and I am joined in the studio for a very special show with two daughters of darkness, making an extra special guest appearance, return to the show. She loves it so much. We, we kicked her off last month and she just keeps coming back. Is Sally Christie? Yeah, I couldn't stay away. It has, I had my, my big finale and now I'm just back here. <laughs> it's like George Costanza I am. walking yeah, back yeah, into just the came restaurant. back into work. <laughs> <laughs> um, couldn't miss this episode. No. And joining us for her first non-radiothon appearance on our show as a, as a reviewer is a film director, writer and animator, Isabel Papard. How are you doing? Hi, very happy to be here representing for the vampires. <laughs> we thought, you know, if we're going to talk about vampires tonight, we should have an actual vampire on the show. Yeah. <laughs> it's only fair. And, you know, with daylight saving, you can get here easy. <laughs> uh, so we'll be vamping it up for a triple feature of vampire films starring, written and directed by women. We will kick... So that was the whole voice thing at the start. You get it now? You understand? Good. Uh, We will kick off our program with a look at a new release in cinemas that inspired this episode, writer-director Emily Harris's new adaptation of Sheridan Le Fanu's seminal tale of lesbian love and vampiric desire, Carmilla. Then we'll walk the streets of Bad City with Anna Lily Amipour's A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and we'll end by entering a secret society of bourgeois LA vampires in Jean Cassavetes's Kiss of the Damned. Also, as you listen to us chatting about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. So we've decided to try out something a little different this week, uh, where we use a, a new release to inspire a themed triple feature, springboarding into a conversation about a particular subgenre or subject. Tonight, we are using the cinema release of Emily Harris's film Carmilla to take a broader look at vampire films with female protagonists, and the sadly few examples of those to date which have been directed by women. Sheridan, Sheridan Le Fanu's, and I always thought Sheridan Le Fanu was a woman. It's a dude. It's like I, Joseph I, Sheridan yeah, Le Fanu. Yeah, I, I thought that for a really long time as well, that it was a female writer. Yeah, mm. completely blindsided. Um, but his 1872 novel Carmilla, from, the, from which the new film takes its inspiration, is one of the earliest works of vampire fiction, written 26 years before Bram Stoker's Dracula which shocked me, and one of the very first with a female vampire, as well as an early example of lesbian protagonists in a horror story where their sexuality isn't demonised. This novel was later adapted loosely by Danish director Carl Theodor Dreyer into the atmospheric 1927 silent classic Vampire, while the first Hollywood sequel to 1931's Dracula was 1936's Dracula's Daughter, which was uh, credited as being based on Dracula's Guest, a deleted chapter from Stoker's Dracula that was later published as a standalone short story, but was, a, but was seemingly more based on, surprise, surprise, Camilla. 
Sapphic vampires have been a staple of horror ever since, particularly in European horror films of the liberated 60s and 70s, with Harry Kumel's Daughters of Darkness, Jess Franco's Vampiros Lesbos, Jimmy Sangster's Just a Lust for a Vampire, Jose Ramon Larraz's Vampires, and, well, half of French uh, director Jean Roland's filmography. Um, films like The New... Um, the Nude Vampire, uh, uh, Fascination, Lips of Blood, The Living Dead Girl, uh, among many more. Leading up to the 1980s with Tony Scott's The Hunger, the 90s with Abel Ferrara's The Addiction, and Michael Almereda's Nadja, which brings us full circle as it's itself a lo-fi modern remake of Dracula's Daughter. But our focus tonight is on women, and women have been working in the horror genre since the early 20th century, with Alice Guy's short adaptations of Faust and Mephistopheles and The Pit and the Pendulum, Lois Weber's short Suspense, and Alan uh, Zimova's uh, co-directed 1922 feature Salome being some of the earliest examples in the silent film era. But women weren't really given a crack at the bloodsucker game until repeat offender Stephanie Rothman, working uh, for Uber producer Roger Corman, co-directed the 1966 drive-in horror film Bloodbath. Before going solo, again for Corman's New World Pictures, where, which, where she'd make all of her films, in 1971 to put her own stamp on the vampire film with the stylish, psychedelic The Velvet Vampire, a film we would have loved to have discussed tonight, except that it remains inexcusably unavailable to legally rent or buy in Australia, especially as it might be the first vampire film ever directed by a woman. That was what my research um, sort of turned up. I don't know if you guys... Yeah, I would think that sounds about right. have, Have either of you seen it? I haven't. I did have a look at um, some of the trailers and images from those films, though, and, uh, yes, very interested. Aren't they amazing? Like, some seriously trippy uh, imagery. Uh, It would be a while before another woman-directed vampire movie would make a splash, but boy, did it ever, as none other than Catherine Bigelow gave us a film we've already covered on this show, uh, the iconic 1987 vampire western Near Dark. It's such a great one. It's also... I I love Near Dark... I think, you know, I probably talked about this when we discussed it, about how it uh, takes, you know, it gives us kind of almost a hillbilly vampire, which we hadn't seen a whole heap of before. Mm. No, yeah, like setting it in that milieu and, and yeah. using all those Western tropes, but mm-hmm. still making this very um, gritty modern vampire film with half the cast of Aliens. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a year later, genre director Cat Shea gave us Dance of the Damned, but examples continued to be few and far between. 1990's Pale Blood was co-directed by V.V. Adashin Su. Japanese director Shimato Sato gave us Tale of a Vampire with Julian Sands in 91. Um, my money's on him taking his clothes off at some point during the movie. <laughs> and perhaps most famously, Ra- uh, Fran Rebel Kazooie directed the inaugural cinematic version of Joss Whedon's beloved Buffy the Vampire Slayer in 1992. I didn't realise that was a female director until you pointed it out the other day. I had, yeah. It surprises a lot of people because I guess cause she didn't sort of have much of a career yeah. like after that. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's one that completely gets under people's radars. Loved that movie when I was nine years old. <laughs> <laughs> My partner loves it as well. Um, since then, Anne Gorsod gave us Embrace of the Vampire in 95, um, starring Alyssa Milano, so you might be familiar with it, Sel. Uh, <laughs> Jennifer Tilly and Spandau Ballet's Martin Kemp. Holly, Holly Classic. Classic. <laughs> it was a bit infamous at the time, wasn't it? I think it was because of the Alyssa Milano nude scene. Um, 
But Holly Dale's indie effort Blood and Donuts came out the same year. Sarah Nee and Bruce co-directed Way of the Vampire in 2005. Carmilla was again used as the basis for Mary Harron's 2011 film The Moth Diaries. And Amy Heckerling brought us Alicia Silverstone in the 2012 horror comedy Vamps. Even as more and more women get a shot at the director's chair, particularly in the horror genre, the vampire film through a female lens is still surprisingly rare. While I may have missed some examples, and if you know any that I didn't mention and that we're not reviewing tonight, please post them to our socials because we'd love to know. Twilight. Oh, God. <laughs> you missed it, Paul. I, I don't consider it a horror movie. It's, it's true, horrible. It's no. I actually think Twilight's like a really fun camp classic. Like, yeah, it, I think it, it will end up being... I hope so, because yep. I remember seeing that at the Astor and I had not you know no familiarity, and I, like laughed like a drain throughout the whole thing. But <laughs> but like I felt like the film's sort of in on the joke as yeah. well. Like it didn't yeah. Um now um we so yeah so we thought was this would make a prime candidate for a spotlight to not only get you to see these films, but for women out there to get behind the laptop and camera and start making their own additions to the blood sucking cinematic canon. Any general thoughts before we on the on this? Yeah, I was also I was really surprised when we decided to kind of a look at female-directed uh, vampire movies that there were so few, um, I assumed, because it is such, uh, I guess, almost a sort of feminine genre um, that there would be a whole lot more out there. But it was really surprising to kind of think that we, you know, didn't have a, a whole lot to choose from. Yeah, I mean, one thing um, we were thinking, uh, one thing I was thinking is that because we were initially looking at lesbian vampire films, um I guess I was thinking that uh, most of those films that I've seen are very male gazy, and there's some that are kind of veering into masturbatory fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I was thinking, you know, I had. That was certainly some of my masturbatory. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, like a, as like, a teenager. Yeah, and um, I guess I was thinking I hadn't seen a lot of um, that genre uh, told through um, queer women's gaze, you mm. know. And I was trying to think of any any vampire films uh, directed by queer women um, that actually are in the lesbian vampire genre. I don't think it exists because, yeah, I, w- I was thinking about that as well. And I don't, I, you know, hopefully somebody proves me wrong. Yeah, because when I think about that genre, I just think of, you know, tight corsets and yeah. heaving mm. breasts and like 60s hairdos. <laughs> and like That's kind of like my, you know, fever dreams of what that kind of le- lesbian vampire genre looks like, you know, which is fine. But, you know, it's very, always been very kind of, heteronormative male yeah. gazy, so it'd be good to see, like, something different. Absolutely. Um, and it seems a, a no-brainer because... It does, doesn't of it? Of all monsters... Like, vampires are the most sensual of all monsters. Uh-huh. There's the most emotion attached a lot of time, and it, it just seems like a kind of a natural... And particularly in the lesbian... Like, Carmilla is literally a lesbian story, and it's mm-hmm. one of the oldest vampire tales. It's like, why aren't there more... Yeah, I also found it really interesting with the three films that we've picked tonight... Um, they're so wildly different to each other. Oh, yeah. And they all kind of um, do look at love and sexuality and lust and in such a, a really, really different way, um, which I think if we think of, you know, like a vampire or zombies or any kind of um, a subgenre that it can get really samey. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, I've, I found that really interesting with these three films that they are all so incredibly different to each other. 
Yeah, I mean, one thing I noticed about them all is they're all love stories. Yeah. yeah. Which is one of the few things they have in common. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, vampires and love stories. That's about it. <laughs> um, it's crazy. Um, so, shall we take our first bite? There was some commotion about the house last night. It's your woman immediately. There was a carriage crash involving a young lady. Not about your age. She seems to be unscathed. Carmilla is the second feature film from director Emily Harris. Isolated from the outside world, 15-year-old Lara, Hannah Ray, lives in seclusion on a vast country estate with her father, Greg Wise, and strict governess Miss Fontaine, Jessica Rain. Late one evening, a mysterious carriage crash brings a young girl, Carmilla, played by Devram Lingnau, to their home to recuperate. Lara immediately becomes enchanted by this strange visitor who arouses her curiosity and awakens her burgeoning desires. Sally, were you seduced by the sapphic siren song of this new reimagining of this classic story? Well, I think that um, this looked at, I guess, repressed teenage sexuality in, I think, kind of... an endearing way, especially when we're looking at female teenage sexuality, where um, I guess it's often seen as wrong or dirty, or you know, it's something that's really confusing, and it's not given that same sort of space that male sort of teenage sexuality is, um, you know, able to be played out in. So I think that this film did serve that purpose really well. Um, but for me, the pacing of this film was a little too slow. Mm. And, um, I mean, normally if I'm watching something with, you know, slow pacing, there's a lot of really amazing sort of character development that comes out. And I don't know that it kind of really achieved that for me either. It had um, a visual style that did remind me of Jean Roland. Um the his ninety seven films too often vampires really kind of came through there, so I can kind of see you know what they were doing with that. But I really feel that this film was lacking a lot of daring, and it needed that daring. Um, I did like how I know in the original text of Carmilla that it's not explicitly said that it's you know lesbian all this and that, and this film um, you know did that really well too. But, yeah, tone-wise and pace-wise, this film, I I think, could have worked a little better. Mm. But there was a lot of really sort of beautiful shots. I loved all the insect stuff in it. It was really nice. (laughs) You enjoyed that? (laughs) Yeah, I did. But, um, yeah, it needed to be a a little more daring for me and that kind of wasn't there. Mm. Izzy? Um, yeah, well, I first of all wanted to say that I thought it was like a really impressive feature debut um, by Emily Harris. Um, thinks that, you know, she did an amazing um, job with I thought all the performances were uniformly very strong, um, had a, like a very striking visual style. Um, it was... I thought it was more about um, repressing your true nature... Um, than about vampir or vamp the vampirism was used as an analogy for self repression. Yeah, it was very um, yeah, vampirism, and I think oh, except for Kiss of the Dam, that the vampirism in a couple of these films that we're talking about tonight really takes a back seat as you know I, exploring something else. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a it's a it's a slam or a misnomer or whatever to say that this is barely a vampire. Movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the vampire 
element is really drawn largely yeah. out of it. Yeah, it seemed about, um, you know, repression, female repression and repression of queer sexuality as well. Um, and it was, um, you know, there was the repression of the true nature was a kind of a literal comment on nature because, um, you know, the interior world is very stuffy and kind of dark and traditional. And that's the world where our protagonist is, you know, repressed and, you know, her hands tied behind her back so she can't use her left hand. You know, she has these forbidden desires where she's looking at, you know, these erotic pictures. But then when she's in nature, the world's very bright and, and kind of alive and all those natural shots of like both the kind of you know the beautiful bright elements of nature but also the chaos and the brutality um so yeah so I felt like um there was kind of this dual world this kind of stuffy internal world and this kind of you know elements elements uh, you know of her true nature which was linked to the natural world Mm. so I thought that that stuff worked really well and I thought that those um thematic elements were coming through in a really interesting way Um, I guess my criticism um, of it and also nods to gothic romance, you know, with the kind of the old kind of castle, the strict governess. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted her to be a little bit creepier. I know. I thought that too. Izzy and I were talking about um, Rebecca before. (laughs) I was going to say she's not the summer come louder graduate from the Danvers School of Governesses. Yeah, and that's kind of – I was hoping for that too because there's different points in the film where she softens and, yeah, you want her to be that kind of – really hard governess for sure. Yeah. yeah, and I felt that as things escalated, you know, I think I wanted her to start creepier so that that escalation mm-hmm. made sense for me. Um, I think that um, there was some issues with the drama and the character arcs, um, which made me feel a little alienated from the characters. So I didn't feel viscerally engaged enough um, so that as the stakes were supposed to get higher. I was involved. Mm. Uh, I didn't feel like involved. Yeah, I didn't feel the um, suspense and tension. Yeah, I, I found that too with that um, f- the characters at different points in the film seemed to kind of be melding into one for me because yeah. there wasn't that um, that character arc that we saw really clearly through it, throughout the film. Yeah, mm. I definitely felt that. But I would say that I did think all the performances were strong. I just didn't – and the, I thought the directing was strong. I just didn't get the chemistry and I thought part of that was a script problem in the mm. character arcs. Yeah, I think this film suffers from a pretty major pacing problem too. Mm. It's the – I mean, I, I get a gentle pace but there's – literally the first hour of this film where very little to nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And it's there's virtually no momentum for the first two-thirds of the film, which is an issue. Um, I agree with you, Izzy, about the, about the screenplay. I, I think, yeah, it's just... And, and with you, Sal, uh, about the characters sort of melding into one. It's just, it, it just feels like um, there's, there's lots of pregnant pauses in cold, dark rooms. And it, it's, it's a point that we kind of get early on. And it's like, yes, we, wanna, we want to... We, like, you know, I love things like the opening with the hand tied behind the back and wondering what that was. And it turned out, you know, the left hand, this belief that the left hand is the hand of the devil and mm-hmm. all this sort of um, is really great and, and a nice bit of kind of, you know, period detail. Um, and enjoyed that sort of thing. But then, yeah, if, if we want to establish that, you know, her, the early, her life is repressed and, and cold and unemotional and, and without 
Camilla, before Camilla comes into her life, we get all that in the first 10 minutes and I feel like we're still doing the same thing nearly an hour in. Mm-hmm. And it's just, yeah, it, it just never really takes flight. Um, it's beautifully photographed um, in yeah. this very dark style. Do we know um, what budget that Emily Harris was working with for this? Because it is, it is a really beautiful looking film. Mm. And, um, and it's also really well cast. Um, the, uh, particularly the adult. Um, actors are all, um, they're all from... Uh, Prince Philip. Yes. <laughs> Prince Philip from The Crown is in there. Is that yeah. Tobias Menzies? Is that who that is? Yeah, because uh, yeah, Tobias Menzies is a terrific um, UK film and TV actor. Greg Wise, um, you know, husband of um, Emma Thompson, mm. um, from, you know, who's the romantic uh, character from Sense and Sensibility way back when, makes a nice return in here. I haven't seen him in, in a flick for a while. Um yeah, and Jessica Rain, of course. So yeah, it's very well cast. It's 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 well mounted. It's certainly thoughtful. But I yeah, I I, I wanted about you know triple the rem- uh, the uh, the uh, momentum. It, it's sort of it's interesting. I I feel like I kept looking at this and feeling like it was going. It was trying to be the. Carmilla for the um, portrait of a lady on fire generation. It seemed to yeah. be kind of with a with a real. But then I, I realised that they possibly came out the same year. Yeah, because this came out in two thousand and nineteen. Yeah, this so is... that would have been the same year as Portrait of a Lady on Fire, mm. which yeah. surprised me. It's like it's felt very influenced by Portrait, mm. but mm-hmm. must the collective consciousness and all that must have been in the air. Um, but yeah, I and while I, I res, respected it as a, as a tale of queer repression and a bit of a different. Tale, I would have. I tend to like a lot more vampire than my vampire movie. A bit more blood. I, I always want more blood. Exactly. And I, even the, the the one scene that could potentially be bloody is off screen. I did like the her like fantasy scenes in this. I thought they were great. I wanted more of that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I did have that that kind of you know bloody clawing into a stomach. Yeah. yeah I didn't yes. Yes. That, that was yeah. the bloodiest scene in the movie. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. I didn't have a huge problem with the pacing early on. I think for me it was more the third act. But something that did really bother me was the music. Um, I had a problem with the acoustic guitar track. Yeah, same. (laughs) It was very overbearing. For me, it didn't meld with the world and it Mm -hmm. wasn't um, placing it in a period or out of a period. It felt like the score was at odds with the world that she'd created, which I thought was a really strong world. Like I think she's a really talented director and that this was like a really strong, you know, debut. Um, But, um, but yeah, I guess there's just some small things like that, that kind of threw me out, you know, and I did have a problem with the way things progressed in the third act, but I was kind of into the like slow, almost like hypnotic pacing, which is, you know, a word I'd also use for, Go walks home alone. At night. Yeah, mm. yeah. So Carmilla is now screening at selected Palace and Independent Cinemas. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Isabel Papard, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. <sighs> A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, see that's more like it, uh, <laughs> is the debut film from writer-director Anna Lily Amipour. 
In a quasi-ghost town called Bad City, Arash, played by Arash Mirandi, is a lonely young man trying his best to make a living, working as a gardener for a rich family to pay off the debts for his drug ad- of his drug-addicted father to a local dealer. Unknown to him, Bad City is inhabited by a lonely, nameless young vampire, played by Sheila Vand, who stalks the street at night and acts as a sort of vigilante, choosing to feed from those whom she considers bad, killing them without mercy. When one night she r- runs into a rush, she will finally know the possibilities that love offers, and that even in Bad City, a small glimmer of hope can shine. Isabel, did this scratch your black and white goth indie itch? Oh, I mean, it's stunning, really. It's a, a classic film. Um, yeah, it's just an amazing kind of cross-cultural mashup, drawing on all these different influences. I got a lot of Jim Jarmusch, you know, a bit of spaghetti western, a mm-hmm. bit of the classic vampire stories. Um, and um, I think that with all those elements in there, it, it creates something completely original that I feel like I've never seen before. Uh, the Chidoras, the cape was amazing. That's beautiful. Um, oh, I love that. I, I feel like um, one of the things all three films have in common, and this was another theme in um, this one, was uh, looking at the female predator um, and female predation, particularly like sexual predation, which is more in the other two films. But in this one, it's like, you know, being a literal predator. And I think there's this idea that, you know, being a sexual predator for a woman is only allowed if you're a supernatural being. Yeah, it's strange that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and there's no consequences because yeah. you yeah. can be a predator with a certain <laughs> amount of agency and um, safety. Um, yeah, it was really interesting all the influences coming together. You know, the the James Dean type character. Mm. He's rewatching this film. I just thought he was really um, what's it Arash? What's his Arash Mirandi? Yeah, he's incredible in this. How he trans. So we we open with him being that kind of James Dean character and then there's that beautiful, you know, vulnerable ecstasy scene and then Mm, there's, you know, different vulnerabilities and then he becomes tough again and cool and he is really took my breath away rewatching this. Yeah, I Mm. saw like a lot of different scenes. Um, you know, even the name A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is speaking of the sexual predator or the, the predator on the kind of unexpecting woman walking home. And mm. there were multiple scenes where the who was the predator and who was the prey was flipped during the course of the scenes. Uh, you know, a lot of long very tense scenes, you know, where you're like, oh, is she in trouble? What's going to happen? And, you know, I think that was something in the style of this, you know, it was extremely hypnotic. There were scenes that were so slow moving with such long takes that they were, they broke my brain. Like (laughs) they made, but in the way that was just the most spectacular, you know, they made something move inside me. And I just thought that was just such incredible direction. Um, yeah, and there was there was a lot of penetration in the. F- I noticed reoccurring images of penetration in the film, um, not literal sexual penetration, but there were those drills. Um, you know, in this town of industry and death, you know, mm. is that a hostile space for women in general? Mm. You know, these drills kind of pounding into the ground. You know, there was um, the ear piercing scene. That was another mm. kind of penetration. You know, there was the egg yolk with the fork. You know, the you know there was just like these kind of reoccurring images um so yeah and I think in in the bad city you know it's like the light and dark 
kind of coexist in in all characters you know which I thought was you know really interesting like even though she's supposed to be a moral creature um you know who kills these bad men I guess um you know there's a scene where she preys on someone completely helpless so no one's really allowed to get out unscathed which I thought was interesting yeah I um saw this uh when it first was released I think was it 2014 yeah 2014 um and loved it, and this was the first time I've rewatched it since then. And it's just such an exquisite film. I think I loved it even more rewatching it this time. Um, yeah, it's interesting, Izzy, that you mentioned about the title because that was one thing that first struck me about this film um, how it takes that very real um, female fear that, you know, a, a, most women, I guess, experience of walking home alone at night where that's, you know, you're completely vulnerable and completely flips that into something that is almost powerful. Um, But one thing that this film had the potential to get lost in, I think it was released at around the time when we had lots of Vice Presents and Vice films like White Lightning and things like that that were these really highly stylized, you know, cool films, which this is. Um, But... All of its elements are so unique that it really just works and is an incredible work of art, this movie. It's, like you were saying, genre-wise, there's, you know, Western, there's classic horror, all this stuff that really shouldn't work together, but it does. And I think especially with the two main plot points of the film, with Arash and um, the girl who have these huge stories. She's a vampire. There's all this, you know, this crime going on in Bad City that Arash has um, become involved in, which are huge, huge things. But they become this really slow background um, plot points. They're not the focus of the film. And the writing of the film and the direction of the film is so incredible that these things that would be the key focus in any other movie allow us to really see, I guess, the souls and the depths of these characters. And it becomes this really slow, beautifully paced film of looking at these two individuals and almost their sort of everyday life or nighttime things that they go through. And, um, yeah, these huge things aren't so important to us. But it and it shouldn't work. Like, it really shouldn't, I don't think, these kind of all this mishmash that goes into this. But it's really outstanding how it does. And... Beautifully shot, those images of the oil rigs and everything are just absolutely gorgeous. And, yeah, I love this. I can't say enough good things about it. <laughs> Can I ask a question, um, what you guys – is the cat her familiar? Because there was multiple kind of times when, like, she's seeing through the eyes, things through the eyes of the cat. I Yes, so, that yeah. had never occurred to me before until the final scenes in this yeah. viewing. Yeah, the last ten minutes. And we get those beautiful shots of the cat's eye. eyes. Towards the end. It's like at the start of the film, he's rescued the cat. I hope this isn't a spoiler. No. (laughs) Um, no. He's rescued the cat. And then we see scenes of injustice through the cat's eyes, which is the point at which the vampire appears. And and then right near the end, his father says the cat's got his mother's eyes. Mm, And then I was wondering, is she connected to the the absent mother? Um, And then I also thought it was interesting that the other women in the film who aren't vampires are symbolised by an absent mother who we don't know what's happened to in a sex worker mm-hmm. and those are the only other kind of symbols of like womanhood kind of thing so it's, it was interesting um 
Yeah. So, so yeah, was the cat she somehow seeing through the cat's eyes? Because there was definitely. Yeah, I, I think there is a, for sure a connection between with yeah. her and the cat. I think you might be onto something there. Yeah, I reckon you are too. For sure. That's, uh, that's right in great. and let us yeah. know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah, like it's, I, it's funny because I hadn't thought of that previously until towards the end of this viewing. Mm-hmm. And there is one particular scene where we get a close up on the cat looking out, and then she appears and seems to react to something mm. the cat is seeing. They're linked visually. Yeah. Yeah. Can't believe I didn't mention the cat. It's such a beautiful oh, cat. I posted that in uh, in one of my Instagram stories today, going, "Is this the real star of this movie? We love <laughs> Sheila Vand, but but the cat's the pretty cat good. Is amazing. I think the cat's called like Masuka or something. Oh. Yes, I actually looked on the cast <laughs> list of the IMDb. Yep. Masuka. It's so great. Um, yeah, this film's fantastic. I like you saw it um, on its first release here, you know, nearly seven years ago now, and 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 loved it. It, there's such a – I think the reason it works, and, you know, it is known as the world's first Iranian vampire spaghetti western, um, is – That's a pretty good title to have, though, It's hey? pretty great. <laughs> and the thing is, like, we've seen so many cult films that do this, that, like, smash genres together, and it, and it ends up, you know, a bit of a mishmash, and, and, and a lot of films have that reputation, you know, get a reputation for being an amusing mishmash. This is not – this – weaves together everything so it's, beautifully. Yeah, it's perfect. It is. It's absolutely gorgeous. And it's because of her incredibly strong command of tone. Like, mm. clearly, Anna Lily Amapur is just so, fo- like, the, like had a, a clear vision of, like, this is the world, this is what I want this to be, this is, let's just, and then just follow this people, these people in this, like, Jamushian world. Mm. Um, and it's funny what you were saying about the script there, Sel, because I think it, it's almost like we, we have the backstories of these characters. Like, a lot of what happens with Arash is almost like what you would write as a character's backstory, like yep. what happens before the film. Yeah. But we, it's sort of the first – because I was surprised. I was shocked coming back to it after all these years how much it focuses on his story. Yeah, I was too. And I, I forgot about the um, – I guess that kind of major crime element to the mm. film that had kind of, you know, sort of left me um, that – the, my remembering of this film was just this kind of slow journey. But yeah. yeah. Mm. And funny, like we were mentioning before with the pacing, like I, I, this is proof in the pudding. Sometimes I am cool with a, with a slow pace. This film does it perfectly because there's does. always something yeah. interesting going on in the frame. There's always this momentum. You're always wondering what people are going to do, what the next move's going to be, what they're going to – like we're so keyed into the characters from early on. And this is the way to do it. Like you know, like once you once you have me in your, you know, once once you have me plugged into the characters and interested in the story and this world, I am ready to go. Mm-hmm. And this is a film that that does all that perfectly. I think she um, and and so much of this film is wordless. Like so much of the like there there is dialogue in it, but so much is communicated through imagery and expression, and so beautifully done. Apparently, um, uh, Amapur is. Uh, thirty has lost thirty percent of her hearing, okay. and attributes her lack of dialogue to this. Uh, <laughs> like apparently, she said this in an interview. Um, but yeah, I, I just love the way it, it it unfolds. I I love how it's it's um, when it you know there are some very cool vampire scenes in this movie as well. Like you know, there are just some really exquisite scenes in general, like the um the scene where they're back at her house. And, you know, the song's playing. That's the one that broke my brain. It's It's so beautiful. Just incredible. (laughs) I could watch it forever. And even um, the when you mentioned before, Izzy, about the the fork with the egg yolk, even 
That was incredible. I was thinking about the um, the floor sweeping scene in oh, Twin, Twin Peaks, the, Peaks Return. the Return when I was watching it, yes. thinking that really gave me the shits. <laughs> I was just like, just clean the floor, get it done. But it was like I could watch this scene where it's perhaps he's going to pierce the egg yolk or not forever. Like it's just so gorgeous. And and that's the thing. And none of this works unless we are interested in the people mm. involved. And um and and you know and you do get an idea of bad city as a world. One of the small details I love is all the signs uh, with the with the, um you know women don't skate here yeah. kind of street signs that, that must be created especially for the film. Like mm. um, it's women in traditional dress on skateboards. You know, mm. to, and then and then the next minute she takes the skateboard from the kid and. Is, skateboarding down the middle of the street in this act of defiance. It's so wonderful. I love this movie. So a girl walks home home alone at night is now available to rent or buy via YouTube, Google Play and Apple TV+. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're back with Primal Screen on Triple R. And to, uh, with myself, Paul Anthony Nelson, with special guests Isabel Papard and Sally Christie. And I structured this, I feel like this is a triple feature. You could almost play this as a triple feature with Camilla, mm. at, you know, earlier in the evening, then and then uh, walks home alone at night, and then for the midnight slot. <laughs> this is our third film of the evening. A little Amos Bush, everyone. Isn't their world? It's our world. But we are the monsters. Hi, I'm Mimi, Jenna's sister. I'm worried she's not stable. Where am I supposed to go, Jenna? To a hotel. She's completely out of control. <laughs> Kiss of the Damned is the debut feature film from writer director Jan Cassavetes, daughter of you know who. <laughs> um, beautiful vampire Juna, played by Josephine de la Bombe, it tries to resist the advances of the handsome human screenwriter Paolo, played by Milo Ventimiglia, but eventually gives in to their passion. When their seductive and her seductive and highly volatile sister Mimi, Roxanne Mesquita, um, unexpectedly comes to visit, she threatens Juna's new relationship, and the whole vampire community becomes endangered. Sally. How did you find this walk among the bougie L.A. vampire elite? I went into this. I didn't have very high expectations for this movie. And I really liked it. (laughs) I thought it was heaps of fun. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, It's, again, one of those things where we have this thing that's, I guess, a product of its time. It would have been around... Um, the time when I guess True Blood was massive. Yeah, this probably. came yeah. out very True Blood. Yeah, <laughs> and True Blood was like the sexiest show ever. And you know the whole kind of um, the vampire community and that kind of God hates fangs and things like that really um, played out in this too. So I think it's definitely sort of speaking to that that moment in time where we had this big resurgence of the really super sexualized vampire film. Um, Looking at this film in compa- – not in comparison, but in line with these three, it's definitely the most sort of hypersexual one. <laughs> yeah. Easily. Yeah, Easily. The, the other two were restrained. It's like this, this one this more than not. makes up for it. Exactly. <laughs> but I, I enjoyed – I really enjoyed that and I really enjoy that we, um, you know, have a vampire film from a female perspective that is so kind of hypersexualized. Mm. I think it's excellent. Um, yeah, I – 
I think when what did Only Love Is Left Alive come out? Was it after I, this? I think it might have been the same year. It might have been twenty. And that's another thing, I guess, kind of speaking to that moment in time, that Only Love Is Left Alive. I really didn't like that film mm-hmm. at all, and this has, I guess, some similar elements to it. But I, I just found this so much fun to watch. There's, I, I mean, obviously vampires can be pretentious. We can have lots of really good pretentious vampire movies and Only Lovers Left Alive was too much of that for me. But this was, yeah, really, really great. And also one thing that I loved about it is um, it had a really good soundtrack. Mm. It had, you know, Melbourne band HTRK on there, lots of really great stuff. So I was pleasantly surprised by this. And I also that one scene that I have to, you know, give a shout out to because I was reading about it and someone was saying about how ridiculous it is and I loved it was the bit where they were making out through the door. Yeah. <laughs> so I so loved it. I was just like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but no, this is um, definitely not the most serious film, but uh, yeah, worth a look. Yes, it was a sexy melodrama with vampires. It was extremely campy, definitely in the exploitation kind of genre in terms of, you know, no real thematic underpinning. And it really did fit into that, you know, I, I think that she captures the tone of like, you know, Euro horror vampire films really beautifully yes. in this. Definitely. Um, yeah, it looked incredible. The cinematography was pretty stunning. Um, yeah, I, I definitely, um, you know... I enjoyed watching it. <laughs> it felt like, I mean, I, I, I don't like the term guilty pleasure because you should never feel guilty, no. but did have that kind of vibe, definite like true blood vibes. Um, I um, I could see the only lovers left alive analogy because the, the plot points were quite similar and I yeah. think that that came a lot after this. So maybe John Bush is... Uh, Interesting. I was yeah, I, was, I just looked it up. It was um, only lovers left alive was the year after this. Because the the actual, the guts of the plot is Almost pretty much same. identical. Yeah. I actually didn't think of that at all, mm. yeah. Um, I wrote a lot of accents. Yes, <laughs> there were. There? There's a lot of um, you know pseudo Eastern European and Italian accents flying around, and it was really like that kind of a very cliched, you know, the two beautiful vampire sisters, and one's got red hair, and the other one's a goth, and she's got red lipstick on, and yeah, I like the break into the German industrial music yes. in one of the killing scenes. I was like, hell yeah, yeah. this is very good. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, you know, it was enjoyable. I, I think one of my big questions is why did anyone like that guy? I was thinking that too. Why was he sexy? Look, um, look it's quite handsome. He was okay, <laughs> you know. But that's another interesting thing if we're thinking about um, why we get drawn into characters and looking at, you know, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night where it's done so beautifully that we're really very quickly thrown into this this love story here where I was thinking the same thing, Isabel. It's like, why why this particular guy? I can't see what is so incredible about him. He's some kind of wanky screenwriter, you know, he's kind of struggling a bit. And, and very quickly they're in love. Yes. And she decides that she is so in love with him that she wants to turn him into Folks, a vampire. I'm, I'm... Folks, you could be, if you swap the swap the, genre, uh, the genders, you could be describing Twilight. It's true. <laughs> it's true because I was, when she's turning him into a vampire, there's no spoilers, it's the beginning of the movie, um, I was thinking, oh, God. You need to get to know him a bit better first. You know, if I started any of my past relationships like this, I'd be so annoyed that I was stuck with this person as a vampire for the rest of my life. 
It's a big commitment. I yeah, do feel huge. like one thing that worked quite well with this film is that I think that the music and the sound and the style of the film were all working really well together. Mm, yeah. Like it all seemed kind of to be quite a united vision and, and I think all of those choices uh, fed into it. But yes, I felt, I mean, all of the characters were completely one-dimensional. Yeah. It was just like opulent, sexy vampire fun. <laughs> I, I'm always impressed when a female director makes something as openly trashy. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's just like no pretension, just get in there. And I, yeah, like you two, I, I, like, yeah, I dug the style of this. Like I, part of me kind of wishes it was shot on film, but it, it's very digital, very early to 2010s. But I, I dug the vamp effects. Like I love the eyes and the, mm-hmm. and I like the love the changing. I, I was watching this for a while and I wasn't sure and I'm kind of like, I, I determined about halfway through that this was fun bad, you know, <laughs> yeah. like like it's it's like really they lay everything on super thick. There's either people doing bad accents or people, um, um, you know, Europeans struggling with English. Yeah, you know, it's it's one or the other. Um, yeah, where were they all from? Yes. <laughs> that's what I wasn't sure. But as it was going on, it was kind of like. Oh wait, a, like because like these wanky vampires and 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 then you start really oh no the film's actually commenting on this on mm. the because vampires are the you know it's often been said that vampires are the aristocrats of the horror universe and they are the the, the aristocratic monsters and I think this film is having a, having a, a gentle dig at that mm-hmm. like I I I, th- I feel like Jan Cassavetes has a deep love of vampire films and particularly Euro horror like, yeah it really shows I was thinking watching it same thing like oh this is fun but is it terrible but then i was like if i if this was you know a 70s horror film i'd be like fuck yeah this yeah, is exactly. amazing like of course i love this and there's so, an orgy sequence yeah, yeah. spoiler so, alert what's not to like <laughs> I, I love trying to pull a scene for this for the clip and like literally every scene is a sex scene and it's like i can't use that um, uh, yeah, and there's so much. And like, I loved how carnal it was, and I loved how everything about this it just goes there. Um, I love that, like, people that pop up in this film, like Riley Keough pops up late yeah, in the film. She does too. Um, yes. Michael Rappaport yep. Yep. Is, is hilarious, getting um, as a as a mouthy coke snorting so agent. The, the polar opposite to Carmilla, where I'm saying it wasn't daring enough. <laughs> this has gone the total opposite way. <laughs> like this and Carmilla could not literally be. <laughs> <laughs> no more possibly opposite. Um, I, I thought there was some interesting stylistic choices. Like there was a lot of kind of disconnected dreamlike sequences that gave you a feeling as the audience of um, being divorced from reality in this kind of half-life vampire feeling where you're kind of going through almost that transformation feeling where you're kind of half in the real world and half in this kind of vampire world and I thought like breaking into that sequences was quite you know it's quite arty for this type of film but it but it actually it did have an effect you know as a viewer I found those sequences worked really well there is a, there is definitely like a European style artiness here, and mm-hmm. like a, like like I said before, I feel like she's clearly influenced by that sort of stuff, um, and it's very satisfying. Like I got through to the end, it's like you know what? It's not the greatest movie, and there's a lot of there's a lot of howlers <laughs> in there, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a great midnight movie. Uh-huh. So, Kiss of the Damned is now available to stream on Amazon Prime and rent or buy via YouTube and Google Play. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple.
Ah. You have been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Isabel Papard, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. We uh, delivered a, a blood-sucking triple feature of female vampire movies, all written, directed by, and starring women. We checked out Carmilla, which is now screening at selected Palace and Independent Cinemas, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which is available to rent or buy on YouTube, Google Play, and Apple TV, and um, A Kiss of the Dam which is available to stream on Amazon Prime and rent or buy via YouTube and Google Play. Next week, I'll be joined by two doctors, Stuart Richards and Eloise Ross, to take (laughs) on three new releases. Um, Thank you both so much for joining me. It's been a blast. so much fun. Thanks for having us. If you want to talk about anything bloody or gory again, (laughs) we'll be back. You have my number. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. A huge thank you also to Morty Osborne for editing the Promise Screen podcast, to Carl Chapman for paneling the show and providing producing assistance to our show. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 